And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he, when he comes in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Pastor Curtis is away with his family today, and we're continuing in our series in the Gospel according to Luke. We're in Luke 17. Appreciate Rebecca reading for us this morning. If you enjoy the Discovery Channel, like I do, then you are well aware of those shows that have the disclaimer, do not attempt this at home, which we're always glad. If you have kids, we're glad they say that, and you probably repeat it to your kids too. But it's fun to watch. Right, Because they're handling hazardous material, maybe something explosive, some dangerous chemical, some uh, not terribly safe uh, experiment. And so they've got to take precautionary measures. They have to use special equipment. They have to do things to make sure that they don't get burned up or blown up. And they've got to get close to the danger, but not too close. And as we heard the passage read for us today there is one of those hazardous materials that was mentioned. I don't know if you heard it. It's the theme of the passage. It's sin. Now, these days, when you say the word sin, I mean, who knows what goes over in the thought bubble above people's minds? I mean, can you imagine watching something on television and a TV personality says something about sin? Well, they're making a joke. Like, I guess it's probably sin. You know, and everybody laughs, right? Why? Because sin, isn't, it's an old-fashioned word these days. It doesn't resonate. It's a ha-ha word. But to Jesus, in this passage, it's not a laughing matter. You see, sin isn't just breaking a rule, but it's an attack against the rule giver. There are consequences to breaking his rules, Jesus is saying in this passage that sin is dangerous to mess with. It's hazardous. Why? Because sinning carries consequences. And you say, well, someone, you might hear that and someone might say, yep, that's just like religion. All this about an angry God and wrath and judgment and sin. Yep, that's so typical. How unloving, how out of step with society today. But you realize that one of the reasons God sets up consequences for sin, he gives us rules against sin, is because that sin itself is 
subhuman behavior. We think humans are where we've moved beyond sin in those categories. But God is saying if you pursue sin, you are pursuing a way against human flourishing. Sin brings the opposite of human flourishing. As someone has said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. I mean, isn't that true? This is the way God designed the world to work. If you gossip behind people's backs, you'll find yourself friendless. If you tell lies, eventually it will catch up with you. If you steal, you may wind up in jail. So God has given rules out of kindness. He set up consequences out of kindness. He's warned us, not just that on a human level, life will go badly if we sin, but he also is loving enough to warn us that there are eternal consequences. So when God says, you must not keep sinning or you will face eternal punishment, like the passage we read last week in the end of Luke 16. For those who throw the flag and say, that's unloving. I mean, think about that. If there are eternal consequences for rebelling against the Creator, then wouldn't it actually be unloving to put little place card size signs at the edge of a thousand foot cliff? It says, warning, don't fall over the cliff. Wouldn't it actually be unloving to not put huge signs up that say, big consequences, big signs, danger, stay away. And so God has pursued just that course of communicating very clearly with with us, there are big consequences. And he warns us, not because he's unloving, just the opposite, because he is supremely loving. And these warnings of consequences are emblems of his kindness. So sin is hazardous. It's dangerous. Why? Because there is a God And we live in his universe. And these realities make it hazardous to mess with sin. So you might say, I heard the passage read. I didn't read the word hazardous. I'm not sure I heard that the whole passage was about sin. Well, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to go back, and we've heard the passage read. I want to go back and walk through the elements in this passage. The elements of Luke 17, 1 to 10. Look at it, and then when we're done with that, I just want to hit pause and just think about it together. So let's look at the elements of verses 1 and 2. Luke 17, 1 and 2. And he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones or vulnerable ones to sin. So what do we see here? Well, the point is, don't let your sin injure someone else. Don't let sin, something you do, injure someone else. Like I said, Jesus just finished telling this story about a rich man who ended up paying the ultimate punishment for his sin. And Jesus then draws the next logical conclusion, and that is if you're one of those people whose life or words or 
(laughs) or example, set people up to fall into sin, if you trip them up by your behavior, then it's better that you were just gone out of the equation. Concrete shoes in the lake. It's better you were removed from being a problem than cause eternal consequences to that individual. Why? Because sin is serious, and when we cause someone else to sin, that is no laughing matter. It's hazardous. In other words, you don't just light a firecracker and hand it off to another human being. Of course we don't do that. And yet when we live in light and are surrounded by other people, we have to be aware of how we are affecting others. Let's move to the next few verses. In these next verses, three and four, you're not the one here who are tripping people up, but you're the one being sinned against. So in other words, what if you're not the victimizer, but you're the victim? Let's read. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So here Jesus is saying, don't let someone else's sin keep on injuring, injuring you or the other person. He's saying, if, first of all, he's saying, if you see someone playing around with hazardous material, if you see someone playing with sin, someone who is sinning, rebuke them, call them out. Say, please, stop playing with fire or you're going to get hurt. I mean, that's the loving thing to do, right? And if in doing so, they are sinning against you, they've wronged you, they've hurt you, they've exposed you to the hazards of sin, and they come and say, I was wrong, would you forgive me? Then we must forgive them. Otherwise, we are now holding that sin, their sin, close to us, and it can harm us. We're holding that grudge. We're holding that hazardous material and not letting it go. And even he says, seven times in a day. Other places in the gospel, Jesus says 70 times seven. In other words, anytime, as much as needed. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, think about this. You're driving along on the interstate. Some guy comes along, cuts you off. Your blood pressure starts to rise. And then the guy, through traffic, you get beside him and you look over at him and he's like, I'm I'm sorry. You know, you can tell he admits he's wrong. And you think, all right, whatever, fine, jerk. (laughs) And then a few minutes later, he cuts you off again. And then he, he, you can see him in the mirror gesturing like, I'm really sorry, you know. And then he does it again. And And pretty soon you're wanting to run him off the road. I mean, it's, it's really beyond bounds. It's beyond expectations. And so the disciples respond to this, just like we would. Let's read verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. 
So this passage mentions a mustard seed, smallest, tiniest seed, and mulberry tree, known for living like 500, 600 years because it has a huge and extensive root system. Not an easy plant to pull up. And Jesus is using this analogy to say, to address what the disciples have said. So what they've said is, Jesus, you're asking too much. Increase our faith. Forgive seven times in a day. Oh, come on. Please, like, like you've asked us to accept this data. And when we try to do that, the little message comes up on our phone that says, you know, storage is full. Well, there's no more room. No, that's just too big, too much. It won't fit. Come on. So increase our faith. Give us more storage to somehow handle what you're telling us. And he says, it's not a faith thing. The problem with you handling it is not faith because even just a tiny bit of faith is enough. Why? Because the nature of faith. What's faith? Faith isn't, the value of faith isn't in the strength of your faith, which is why when people say, well, I'm a person of faith, it means like nothing. The question is, we're all people of faith. We're all putting our confidence in something. We all rely on some kind of system, some kind of grid to interpret reality and make life work. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith that makes all the difference. This kind of mustard seed faith is like looking out a tiny little window, tiny window, to see a massive, all-capable God. It's not the size of the window. It's not the size of your faith. It's the God that your faith is in. So Jesus says, eh, don't talk about faith. It's not about faith. And then Jesus tells a story in verses 7 to 10 that says, this is what it's really about. He tells a story which, as Pastor Curtis has reminded us through our journeys in Luke, these stories, these parables that Jesus tells are not there to warm our hearts and give us a cozy little illustration. They're there to shatter our categories. And the illustration today is doubly shattering because not only is there Jesus' point, which is pointed, but there's also the way he illustrates it. Servants, masters, slaves can be uncomfortable in our setting. What is, what is going on here? Well, let's, let's read this together. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty, or literally what we owed. So here is a master who has a servant. We might say an employee and an employer, but actually the relationship here is much tighter than that. Here is a servant, sometimes they would voluntarily choose to stay, to become part of the family, part of the household. There'd be a sense of ownership and belonging between the servant and the master. And in this story, the servant is working all day long. Faithful, faithful, hard work, hard work. He comes in and 
Jesus says something that he expects his audience to be nodding their heads and going, yes, yes, we, we expect this. This is reasonable. But it sounds kind of unreasonable to us in our day, right? So he says it's only reasonable to expect that when the servant comes in, he says, you get my meal ready. Well, we might say it this way. I mean, how crazy would it sound if your boss came to you and said, hey, can I do your expense reports? What? That's that's my job. I got it. We're good. Okay? So what the expectation was is preparing the meal. This was the servant's job in this context. So no one blinked at this. This was normal. This was what was expected. What about that thank you part? That sounds a little harsh. Well, I mean, this is like you getting a handwritten note from your boss saying, thank you. I want to let you know how much I appreciate you're putting in 40 hours this week. Well, no one would do that. Why? Because it's simply what's expected. The same is here. So Jesus is expecting to say, don't you understand that doing what's commanded in this relationship of servant to master is only what you expect? It's what's owed. You see, the servant here had an obligation. He had been bought. Sometimes, instead of, there was no bankruptcy courts. So if you couldn't pay your debts, you were going to prison. Unless someone said, I'll tell you what, you don't go to prison. You can stay with your family. You come work for me. I'll give you gainful employment, a place to belong, and a way to take care of your family. There's a close relationship between the servant and the master. So what does this have to do with sin? Remember the hazardous living? So when Jesus says, you must forgive sin even when it's outrageous, seven times a day, the answer is not, well, I guess I need stronger faith. He says, no, no, no. The answer is, you need to realize that the command to forgive doesn't just come out of left field. The command comes from the master who bought you. He's saying, don't forget that you're the servant. And you're a servant in a relationship that's already shaped by sin and forgiveness, right? Okay, so you see how the elements of the passage fit together? It's about this hazardous material. We shouldn't bring others, trip them up so that they fall into that sin and injure them. We shouldn't let someone else's sin against us injure them or us. We need to rebuke and forgive them. It's not a matter of taking some kind of spiritual Red Bull and having stronger faith. It's a matter of understanding this relationship and not forgetting that we are the servants and he is the master. So we've heard it read. We've gone back through and considered the elements of this passage. And I just want to kind of just, let's just pause. Let's think together. What's the message here? What can we take away? I'd like to consider this by looking at two potential missteps and then a path forward. The first misstep in the way we handle the hazardous material of sin, the first misstep is to handle this toxicity of sin in a way that's cavalier. I mean, it's easy to think, right? Well, I'm a part of the master's household. It's where I belong. 
I'm there forever. He has purchased me. And in fact, when we sin, people are supposed to forgive seven times a day or more. So, I mean, sin, it's, it's practically inconsequential. I mean, after all, Christianity is all about grace, right? We're not under law, but we're under grace. And we become desensitized to the hazards of sin. Like the lion tamer who becomes accustomed to his work until it's too late. That's the problem in verses 1 and 2. We treat sin like it's no big deal. We treat holiness and godly living as if they're too restrictive and pinched and narrow. And in doing so, we embolden others to sin. We leave a hazard, a mess for others to trip over. This really cuts against the grain, doesn't it? I mean, we all like to be private, keep our anonymity. I mean, people might say, I mean, who cares what people think about me? I mean, that's their problem. But the reality that's under the surface of our passage today is that we are not separated. We are connected. Our lives rub up and bump against other people's lives. We affect each other. We are not alone. So what about your words? Do your words create an atmosphere that makes others feel comfortable gossiping? Tearing others down? What about your choices? Do the things you do or post about, do these things allow someone to feel freedom to go against their conscience? How about your priorities? Do your priorities help point people to love Jesus more and trust him more? Or do your priorities just set a tone in your life of, you know, we live a good life, we have fun, you know, we, we're good people. But if God is not intentionally in that equation, aren't you setting them up to live what technically would be a godless life? How are you affecting others? Is sinning seem, does it seem hazardous to you? Don't think that it's inconsequential. That's the first misstep. The second is the flip side. It's not that it's inconsequential, but that we think it's, it's outrageous. In other words, we become easily scandalized by the hazardousness of sin. We see sin in others and we think, well, I'm part of the master's household and I obey his rules. I work hard to do that and I will hold others into account for their failings. I mean, Christianity is about righteousness, right? And justice will be served. And sin becomes outrageous to us. And we're outraged. And we have removed ourselves from that hazard. Fine. You be that way? Fine. You're a mess. I'm back here. I'll do what's right. 
I have no responsibility toward you. It's like the person who never comes out of their house because of the potential hazards outside. This is the problem featured in verses 3 and 4. We treat sin as a personal affront or something disgusting. And we're slow to extend forgiveness and show mercy. And we're slow to see the sin in ourselves. But we're quick to see it in others and disdain it. So sometimes we do this, we give people the cold shoulder. We put distance between ourselves and them. Probably this isn't, doesn't happen with someone that you would consider an acquaintance. The closer the relationship, I mean, everybody can fake being friendly. But when it's a close relationship, you can put distance at the deep level. Sometimes it doesn't look like cold shoulder. It looks like bitterness, deep-seated, long-standing animosity or coldness toward that other person. But when we actually contemplate releasing that person from their offense, our hearts just scream, it isn't fair. That's not right. He doesn't deserve it. I deserve better. Consequences must fall. Oh, and it sounds so right. I mean, we're right. I mean, how much righter is right? Right is right. But Jesus says you've got to release the other person. You ha- you're holding the hazardness of sin up against yourself. You're going to hurt not just them. You may want that, but you're going to hurt you by holding that grudge. So I mean, there's no mistake. This is painful. Jesus is calling for something very uncomfortable. Wherever forgiveness happens... There's pain. There's cost. Always. You never just forgive, well, I forgive you, we're done. No, there's, oh, so I've heard it this way. It's like if my neighbor were backing out of his driveway and hits my mailbox, takes it out, gets out of the car, comes to my door, rings the doorbell, comes to the door, says, I hate your mailbox. I can say, oh, that's all forgiven. No problem, I'll take care of it. But someone's got to pay for the mailbox. Someone's got to go out and dig up the old remains, pour the new hole, put the new post in, attached a mailbox. Someone's got to do that. Someone's got to pay the cost in time and resources and money. But forgiveness says, I'm going to release you from paying that. It's painful. And even if the offender is gone, maybe they've passed away. Maybe it's just no way to get a hold of them. Maybe for whatever reason... That conversation is impossible. Forgiveness has the mentality of saying, I will release you. Why? Because that sin is a hazard and must not be held. So these are the two missteps. Treating sin too cavalierly, too carelessly, as if it's not consequential, as if it's not dangerous. And the other is uh, the, the flip side. Is holding yourself aloof, saying, there's the danger, it's over there, I'm done with that, thank you very much. Both are dangerous. Both are missteps. So what's the path forward? The answer is in the story that Jesus told in verses 7 to 10. 
As Christians, I mentioned earlier, we are servants of our master. Jesus is Lord and master. We are not our own. We are owned by Jesus. We were slaves in the household of sin. And what a tyrant sin is. Sin doesn't care if you're wounded, destroyed, hurt by sin. Doesn't care what hazards you may face. But the master bought us at great personal cost to himself and then put us in his good service in his household. And so our existence is never alone. We're always in contact with others. We are united. We affect each other. And God is always part of the equation. We belong to him. Whether you recognize it, whether you live in the light of it, it is what is true. It's reality. You are not your own. When I was growing up, I remember being, oh, in elementary school and My dad would sometimes drop me off at school and every time, probably much to my embarrassment at the car line, would always tell me as I was getting out of the car, remember who you belong to. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he meant two things. First, he meant uh, you're a Thornton and as a member of the Thornton family, you know, there were certain things that he expected. It means something. But he also meant you belong to God and that means something. Remember who you belong to. We are owned. And as servants, therefore, we are obligated. We are obligated to obey. We are obligated to forgive. There is, to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not willing to forgive, is an absolute anomaly. It's like a round circle. I mean, a round square or a square circle. It just doesn't work. We must take his word seriously. We are owned, but we're not only owned, but as servants, we owe. We have an obligation. The last part of the last verse we read speaks of saying we have only done our duty. And like I mentioned earlier, that duty, it means, it literally says we have done what we owe. We have worked against our obligation. And this owing that we owe our master is not of the same kind as like owing college debt or owing a payment on a car. Because when we owe a person or an institution, what happens is we compensate them for what they've given us until that sum is paid off, until the amount of the debt is matched by payments against the debt. But the difference is, with our obligation to Jesus, what we owe him, we'll never be able to match what we actually owe We owe more than we could ever pay. We owe him our lives. And we can't and we don't. We can never pay him back. So, I mean, hypothetically? Hypothetically, the price of paying him back would mean our death. Unhypothetically, that's exactly what Jesus paid. He paid with his life by dying in our place for our sin. We were covered with that hazardous material. We were covered with sin. And Jesus took all of that on himself. All the cavalier love of sin, all the aloof self-righteousness, 
all the ugliness and inhumane suffering because of sin, Jesus took all of it on himself. And even said, while being maltreated, Father, forgive them. He paid with his life. He dealt with sin and forgave sinners. And so don't we, as servants in the household of this master, owe exactly the same to deal with sin, to forgive offenders? As his, we are his servants and we're obligated to follow our master regardless of how we feel or what we prefer. So brothers and sisters, here's what we're saying. We're saying we must deal seriously with sin if we were forgiven at such a price. You understand? The price with which we were purchased was so great because of sin We must deal seriously with sin. This is no small thing. But we also must deal mercifully with sin if we were forgiven at such a price. You've probably heard the story, maybe from vacation Bible school or Sunday school, lessons. You've heard the story, Jesus comes to your house, say, Jesus, I want you to come in. You're in charge of my life. You're my master. You're my savior. Come in. And you welcome. This is, all of this is yours. And he says, um, can I go on the second floor? Oh, no, no the first floor is where the, we want you to be right now. Well, let's go upstairs, he says. You go upstairs and says, well, you can go in all these upstairs is all yours. He says, what about that room? Yeah, that's, that's, a, 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 that's a private room. I'd like to go in there. And we all know why we don't want Jesus on that floor or in that room. It's because we keep hazardous material in there. We deal cavalierly with sin. We harbor bitterness against others who sin against us. And we really don't want to let it go. Are there rooms that you, you really want to keep to yourself? Hazardous material kept in them? It's your duty to give them the key. It may not be what you want deep down, so how do, we, how do we bring ourselves to, to give them the keys? Every room, upstairs, downstairs. Well, one way is to consider just how dangerous it is to keep sin in the house. But there's more. We have to understand the beauty of Jesus. In other words, you're going to love what he'll do to the room. This is what he's good at. Taking the mess we've made, the dangerous messes we've left, and cleaning them up. 
what the master does. It's what he came and died to do. It may not be what we want, but it is our duty. And when you see the glory and the majesty of Jesus and what he can do in your life to deal with your sin and your bitterness, you'll be more inclined to toss him the keys. We sang a song earlier, Amazing Grace. Original words were written by Pastor John Newton. He was a pastor in England in the 1700s. He wrote lots of hymns. Here's a verse of one of them. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. Brothers and sisters, I meet with people regularly who are hurting and have been hurt because of sin. And yet, I sin, you sin. But I come to hate it more and more because I see what it does. Don't keep it. Don't keep it held up in your life. Whether sins that embolden others to sin or holding unforgiveness against the sin of someone else, you, you can't. You can't. We want what's best for you as pastors. We want you to live in the good of what Jesus has purchased for you. And we're pointing to it, leaving that room locked. It may seem like the devil himself is going to jump out if you unlock that door. But I'm telling you, if you don't, you will pay the penalties in your life. Oh, you don't want that. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, uh, please help us to see sin like you do, to hate it, to run from it, to ask you to help us with it and forgive us and forgive others. Oh, Lord, how quickly we forget how dangerous it is. How quickly we forget the price you paid and the love you have for us and how you want what's best. Oh, help us listen to you and to obey. And we pray all this in the good name of Jesus. Amen.